All right, let's go into our Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 1. If you're joining us today and you haven't been here for a while or you've just forgotten what we're doing, we are going through the book of Mark. We are going to go through the book of Mark apparently for about a year, maybe a little longer. It just depends because we haven't made it out of chapter one yet. And this is, I think, Sunday number five. So that's just the pace. And uh, it's worth it, though, right, to just go through and go slow and see what God is saying. We rush over eternal things so quickly so we can get to something else. Uh, that may not be the winning strategy that we hope. So we're going to read today, Mark chapter 1. We're going to read verse 29 to verse 39. So I'm going to read this, uh, and then we are going to uh, pray, and then we are going to find out what Jesus is doing. Verse 29, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that it is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It is able to separate soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. So Lord, we come confused frequently. We come saying, who can know the heart? God, where am I at? I don't know why I don't feel connected to you. God, you can separate out all of what's going on in our heart and penetrate because of your word through the Spirit and make us see you glorious, powerful, Savior, King. Lord, I pray that you would do that this morning and you would help us to understand what we need to understand from this text. And Lord, help me to speak it in a way that is pleasing to you and helpful to everyone here. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the first thing I'm going to have you do uh, is, uh, if Daryl, if you could throw up on the board, uh, if it's possible, or Seth, or one of you, however it works, we have a map. Okay, now Seth tells me that if you're watching online, this is almost going to look like a weatherman's shot, so everybody could go back and watch this later. But, so if I'm sticking my hand here, am I pointing? Okay, it's, I don't know, I can't tell. But what I want, I, I wanted to have a map because I think the geography is helpful because I grew up hearing um, stories about Jesus and I've read the Bible and, and you, you just hear these names of the cities and the towns. And a lot of times, because this was 2,000 years ago, we have this mindset of just this 
incredibly primitive people. I don't know if that's what's in your mind, and it was just kind of, in my mind, everything, everywhere Jesus went, it was just sandy and dry and brown and just a bunch of rocks, and it was just, man, it was kind of awful. Uh, but that is not what Israel looks like, and that is not what the region looked like here. And you can see on the map uh, where it says Galilee. You see where it says Tetrarchy of Philip, and it says Decapolis there on the far right. Just then there's a little lake there, the Sea of Galilee, which uh, becomes prominent throughout all of the gospel. And then the Galilean region, right up in the middle above Galilee, it says Capernaum. And that is where we are at for a long period of time in the, uh, in the Gospel of Mark and in all the Gospels. Jesus spends a lot of his ministry there in that region of Galilee. Just for a frame of reference, if you go all the way down to the south, almost to the bottom of the map, you see under Judea it says Jerusalem. And that's, that is where Jesus spends a lot of time walking back and forth through this area. And so this is just to give you a visual of, of what's the, the geography of where we're at. Part of, the, part of the reason that I'm bringing that up is what it tells us here that he left the synagogue that was at Capernaum. Remember last week he had just cast the demon out and the demon had recognized who he was and Jesus demonstrated his authority because he did not have to do spells. He didn't have to do the jingling of beads. He didn't do anything weird at all like Jewish exorcisms were typically done. He simply told the demon to leave and to shut up. Remember we talked about that. Shut up. And he, the demon shut up and it left. And so that is what happens. He goes to church, the synagogue, has this powerful display of his kingship and he's the Messiah. And then immediately he leaves the synagogue and goes to the house of Simon and Andrew. Here's what's really interesting. That they have excavated this area, and I told you last week they, they found the synagogue at Capernaum. There was a really big one built out of white limestone, which meant lots of money because there is no limestone there. They had to import it in. And they found underneath of the white limestone the foundation of the synagogue that Jesus would have been in. And nearby, which the text is telling us, he left the synagogue and entered the house of St. Peter. They found a house, and when they excavated that house, they found it filled with Christian graffiti from the 4th century. And it's widely regarded that the reason that this house had so much attention and so many things done in this house, and it's a really large house that had a wide open living space. And they, they believe this was a house church, and they believe it is almost universally accepted by the archaeological groups that have done it, and church historians. It was the house of Peter, which is just really neat to just visualize that Jesus left the synagogue and went to Peter's house, and we think that Jesus probably stayed with Peter throughout his earthly ministry. So part of, part of what I want us to have in our hearts and minds is that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, st still had to live and function as a human being. He is God in the flesh, but he still needs to 
he still needs a place to sleep and to eat. And sometimes I even like to imagine Jesus making fun of Peter. I'm just hoping that happened, like whatever quirks Peter may have had or James. I just, I, I've got to believe that sarcasm is just one of the things that God dis- displayed. But anyway, it's not here. It's not in the. T- I just, I just like, I just like to get the picture that Jesus is not just walking around like this all the time in some kind of robe and blessings. Like that's not. That is not the way that Jesus was. He left the synagogue. He goes into the house. And something that all of us can relate to, there's somebody sick. Now, Jesus has just cast out a demon. But now we're in private. There's no crowds. Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't know necessarily that fevers were directly tied to infections internally or what we don't know what caused the fever. We don't know if it was just like a flu or if it was tied to something more detrimental. We don't know. We just know that she had a fever and she was sick enough that she was laying down in bed and they came and told Jesus about it, which is another way of saying, hey Jesus, could you fix this? When they told him about it, could you come and take care of my mother-in-law? Look at what Jesus does in verse 31. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Notice the difference between what he did with the demon and what he did with this sickness. Now, we're not going to put Jesus in a box at all in the way he deals with sickness and the way he deals with demons because he does several different things throughout the Gospels, and we'll look at them as we go. But in this case, Jesus reaches down into the bed, grabs her by the hand, and just lifts her up. Part of, part of what I, I want us to see in what Jesus is doing, and we're going to see it again with the leper, we're going to see it in multiple places, is that physical touch was a demonstration of compassion, and it is also the way that he demonstrated his power was with this physical touch. You remember the woman with the issue of blood? You remember what she did? Jesus didn't touch her. She made her way to Jesus. Do you remember this story? If I can touch the hem of his garment, I will be made well. There was a Jewish legend out of Malachi where it says the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings, which is Hebrew for talit, which is the hem of the garment. And and that is why specifically the gospel mentions her touching his hem. And she was basically saying, this is the Messiah. I believe it's him. If I can get to him and touch him, I'll be healed. And Jesus said, power went out of me. So so Jesus in his in this earthly ministry that he has, as our Messiah, as the King of the universe, as a man, fully God, fully man, operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, just touches her and lifts her up and she's healed. And she begins to serve them immediately. Which 
This is after the this is after the synagogue. So what she probably did was start making food, which is would would in other words, she went back to what she normally would be doing. It's not for nothing that there's traditions in our life. Does anybody do Sunday afternoon lunch? Does anybody have some traditions around that or grew up with some? If you don't have any traditions, make some. I think you should make some that center around fellowship and food. This shouldn't be a hard sermon. For This shouldn't be a hard uh, biblical application. Okay? You, you mean we should be eating and having time together? Yes! That is exactly what I'm saying. And with family and with friends, you should have time together. Togetherness is important. Do you know what COVID-19 taught me? Togetherness is really important. Super important. The isolation is bad. Togetherness is good. So togetherness with your family, friends, fellowship, Food, not gluttony, but food. That's what that's what happens here. And these these kind of traditions of of being together and eating are really important. It's not just for Thanksgiving, it, which is important, or Christmas dinner, which is also important. But it's a regular routine of togetherness. Okay. Look at verse thirty-two. That evening at sundown. They brought to him all who were sick. Now wait, we're still on the Sabbath, right? So you, you know that the Jewish Sabbath, the day begins at sundown. So the Sabbath actually begins on Friday night when the sun goes down or around 6 p.m. That's when the Sabbath starts and it goes all the way to 6 p.m. the next day, which is Saturday. Now it's in the evening, it's past the Sabbath, so now they are technically on Sunday, which is not their Sabbath, or not our Sabbath, but that was theirs. And that's when they start bringing people. Probably because nobody wanted to be accused of doing work on the Sabbath. Now this is going to be an issue later on. Jesus is going to get in trouble from the Pharisees for healing on the Sabbath. And he does it on purpose because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's demonstrating who he is. But, but here, they wait. So you've got a picture. There are people that heard the teaching in the synagogue, saw what Jesus did with the demon, and said, we got to get to this guy. There is a miracle worker. Now, as we're going to see, it doesn't mean they believed he was the Messiah. It just means they believed he did a miracle. And so all the suffering and all the pain because of the lack of modern medicine, so all the diseases that would have been in this Capernaum area, they are bringing those people to where Jesus is at. Is he at Peter's house? He's at the fisherman's house, right? Okay, once the Sabbath is over, we're bringing the sick folks over there. I'm bringing mom, get Aunt Letty, get whoever. We're going to bring them over. And that's what they did. At sundown, it's after the Sabbath, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. Just picture what this would have been like. A bunch of sick, demon-possessed people. Yay. Our church service would feel a little different 
if you just brought in a bunch of people wailing in pain or out of their minds with demon possession. That's, that's what this was like, except it wasn't at a church. It was at Peter's house. And it was in the evening. The whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Put that over here. And cast out many demons. And put that over here. And there's a distinction being made. Because in the early world, or in the first century, there wasn't always a distinction made between demon possession and illness. Some, they didn't know which was which or what was what, and they didn't always have a way to describe it. And the author, or Mark, is telling us there were people who were sick, but they're not demon-possessed. And then there are people who are demon-possessed, which is a kind of sickness, but it's not a sickness. It's spiritual, and it is an actual demon that is afflicting them. And we'll get into that probably more as we go through the Gospel of Mark. But, it, but it's important because there are people even today who will say, you know, if you have cancer, it's demonic. Well, maybe it's just the cells that have gotten sick and are cancerous, and it's a natural, the result of the fall of man disease. It's not demonic. So just making the distinction, because Mark makes the distinction, and that is what Jesus does. So it's nighttime, all these people are sick, he's doing ministry, he's healing the sick, He's casting out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So remember last week we talked about the demons recognized quicker than the people who this was. They knew this was the Messiah. They knew this was God in the flesh. They proclaimed it whenever he showed up in fear and Jesus made them shut up. He either made them shut up because he did not want advertisement from the devil. Or, also, he's telling them to shut up because he's demonstrating his complete, total authority and power over the demonic. And that is what he's doing here. So I want you to picture, you have come to Peter's house, church is over, you're now allowed to go places, you've, you've brought your maybe 12-year-old who can't walk, and you've drugged them on a mat, and you got there, and there's this giant crowd, and you hear the shrieking of demon-possessed people. You hear babies crying as moms are holding them, trying to keep them calm and away from the demon-possessed people. And you have Jesus somewhere in the center of all that commanding demons to shut up, and they do. And then touching sick people, and they're healed. Can you picture what this looked like? It would be euphoric pandemonium. It would be, oh my gosh. It would be, who is this? But you're there because you're sick, or a, a friend is sick, or a family member is sick, or demon-possessed, and you there is somebody doing something about it. And that is why you are ready, you're, you're thrilled. We don't know how long it went on, but it probably went on for a while because it says the whole town was there. Now that's probably hyperbole. That's just an, a, a slight, I don't know if, because we think there was maybe fifteen to 20,000 people that lived in this region. I don't believe 15,000 people 
were at the door, but there was a big crowd of people that were there. Verse 35 really transitions into something that we should pay a lot of attention to. Verse 35, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Just stop for a second. Jesus has been doing healing and ministry for we don't know how long. How many hours did it take? I don't know. But what I do know is is that it was evening when they showed up. So Jesus was probably up way past midnight. Let's just say, let's just say he went to bed at one in the morning. I don't, I don't know. Be, but Mark wants you and I to know that he got up very early in the morning while it was still dark. So we're talking like 4 a.m. Jesus gets up after all of this ministry, which is tiring. Do you know the, the sleepiest I am is on Sundays? Truly. I don't know what it is. You can ask any pastor just preaching. It's like it drains you. I, I'm, I, I don't know why. It just does. I can't imagine what Jesus was doing and what that was like. So, so he's tired. He's sleepy. And he gets up early in the morning while it's still dark. He departed and went out to a desolate place. There he prayed. Now, in that map, when you look at Galilee, there is no wilderness there. In fact, it's all it's agriculture, it's lush. It's, on, it's actually a really nice area. There isn't a wilderness nearby. And we know he's not too far away because the disciples are going to come find him. So when it says a desolate, in Greek it's saying a wilderness place, Jesus has found somewhere by himself away from everybody else and he is praying. I just want us to pause and think about the difference in our mindset and Jesus' mindset. If you had woke up on Sunday morning and preached in the synagogue or at church and a demon shows up and you tell it to shut up and everybody's like, look at this, a, a teaching with authority. And then you go to Simon's house and you heal his mother-in-law and then a giant crowd comes and you cast out a bunch of demons and you heal a bunch of sick people. I am willing to bet that you would feel slightly more spiritual than you do right now. You would probably feel something like, you know, I have really got this thing figured out. Now, you, you would humbly put that thought away while you relished it simultaneously. Everybody understand that feeling? It's like, yes. Yes. Hey, I've got a message. Me. You know, you know what I mean? I, okay, that's what, that is a natural human response and that is a danger of spiritual pride that every one of us have. You finally overcome a temptation. You finally get over some hump in your life spiritually. And immediately you find a new hump to get over, which is the spiritual pride of having overcome that. Does that make sense to everybody? I overcame it. Look at me. Oh, wait. Now, yeah, here's another problem I have. How in the world? It's immediately. There's another problem. And it's, 
Again, it's pride. But Jesus does not think this way. He does not act this way because he is perfect. He's the Son of God. And if the Son of God gets up early after a day of ministry and demonstrating authority and power and gets off by himself to pray, honestly, what does that tell us? Truly. Everybody, this isn't complex at all. How important is prayer? There are a lot of you here that feel like prayer is something that you're supposed to do to feel better because you did. Or to feel spiritual. Or to be able to check off some kind of box on a checklist you have in your mind and your heart. Prayer is a rejuvenation in relationship with God. Whether it feels like some spiritual moment or not, Jesus gets away and prays. There are three times in the book of Mark that he is going to describe Jesus getting away, and each time it's at a crisis moment. Now, we know he got away a lot more than that. But this is the first time that he does it, and he gets away to pray because he must rejuvenate and refresh in his walk with God the Father on the earth, even as the Son of God. Which tells me all of us have to pray. We already know that. We already know that we do. But this demonstrates in a, in a specific way, if the Son of God is praying off by himself, then you and I should be praying off by ourselves with intentionality. If I, if I was going to come to your house, so I'll put somebody on the spot and make them, this is somebody, okay. Jan is incredibly hospitable. She, if she invites you over to her house to have a meal or to have anything, her, Glenn, both, it is prepared and it's really nice and everything about it is really wonderful. She's just really good at it, okay? Some people are better at it. If you came, if I invited you, not Jennifer, because Jennifer's the same way, but if I invited you, be like, there's some peanut butter and jelly. Is, it, is that good? I mean, okay, so, so I'm, not, I'm not gifted with hospitality. I think there's, there's some tap water and peanut butter and jelly. Thank you for coming. Um, that, that would be my preparation. Jennifer is completely the opposite. There's some of you that are just really good at hospitality. And the reason I'm bringing that up is if somebody's coming to your house, you prepare, right? You, you get ready, you plan, you intentionally do things like grocery shop. You don't just hope that there's enough peanut butter and jelly to go around. You actually buy peanut butter and jelly or whatever it is that you do. Prayer should be something that is intentional. Prayer should be something that is prepared for. What, what do I mean by that? I mean that you should plan it as a part of your daily life the same way that you would plan for somebody to come to your house. Like you vacuum the floor and you clean everything up. You throw everything in that one room that nobody goes into so everybody can know that you're clean, but you're really not. You're only clean when other people are there. This is ubiquitous amongst all of us, right? Everybody does this. There's this one room, you just toss it in, 
and then they're not allowed in that room. Okay. But you prepare. You get ready. You are intentional about it. Jesus was intentional about prayer, and I'm telling you, the application from this text is we should never assume that it's okay for us to just live our lives and just throw a couple prayers up every once in a while, or in particular when things are bad. Things were not bad. Jesus had just done all kinds of great stuff. And He still says to us, I'm getting off to pray. i got to get away and pray. So do we. Some people have a hard time praying because they don't know what to say. They don't know what, they don't, they just, like, I don't know, I feel so awkward. Do you know how you fix that? You're going to have to keep doing it. I'll give you, I'll give you this. If you don't know how to pray, open up the book of Psalms, find a psalm and pray it like a prayer because that's what they are. Find the prayers that are in, in the epistles. The beginning of each epistle that Paul wrote is just about has a prayer. Pray those things. And if you feel mechanical and it, I'm supposed to have these spiritual goosebumps, you are, you are in the wrong religion because you are waiting for some idealistic idea of what prayer is supposed to be and you'll never get there. You'll miss the blessing of what God has for people who intentionally prepare to pray and they do it, you have seasons where it's dry and you have seasons where it is, oh my gosh, John Wesley said, I've had experiences in prayer that alarmed me. What were those? I have no idea. Dwight Moody said that he had a time of prayer where he was in desperation and he actually had to ask God to quit. Dwight Moody, the founder of Moody Bible Institute in New York City, after they had a huge fire in Chicago, goes to New York looking for money, looking for funding, is on the streets of New York City at like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, begins to pray. He needs God, and he said God poured out His Spirit and love, and bap this is His words, baptized me with love to such a degree that I had to ask Him to stay His hand because it was overwhelming. Now, if prayer was like that every time, be like, oh, yes, but it's not. But you don't look for those experiences. You look for God as you pray. Lord, I feel dry. I feel spiritual as a doorknob, but I am here because you. I need you, and I know I need you. And my dryness is testimony that I need you. So, Lord, work in my life. Help me today. Give me wisdom. and then. Worship and thank Him. And then go do your day. But spend time of intentional prayer. It is not just a good idea. It is essential that we do it. Look at what the disciples say. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him wherever he was praying. And they said to him, Everyone's looking for you. Now, I said that with an obvious inflection in my voice. But you get the sense from what they said that they were annoyed. Where are you? 
What are you doing? Jesus, you just had this awesome night. So this debut, this opening night of the season. You scored 60 points. Where are you at? You've got people that want you. You're important. Don't you recognize that verse 28 happened, that your fame is spreading everywhere? Don't you? This ministry is going places. Jesus, where are you? What is this prayer nonsense? You're telling demons what to do? We saw this kid's leg get healed? What did, Jesus, come on. We got, we got a crowd to appease. We got a crowd to gather. Do you, do you get where we're going here? And why do I think that's what was in their heart and mind? Because of what Jesus says in the next verse. He said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Because we're going to see throughout the gospel that he can't hardly go anywhere without the crowds pressing in around him. And we're going to find out, and I think you're finding out here, that the miracles are what attracted the people not the message. The signs are what attracted the people. We are no different today. I've got to be super careful how I say this because I, I don't want to be misunderstood. But man, people hear that maybe God's doing something over here. Maybe God's doing something over there. We'll go chase those things. And I don't know if we're chasing God when we go chase the next big revival, the next big thing, the next big whatever, the next big trend within churches, but that's what happens. It is human nature to be drawn to the spectacular. And Jesus says, I'm going to, and you saw all those other towns, Capernaum, all around the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to these other towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. To preach what he began to preach earlier, that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The message is what was important. The signs confirm that Jesus is the Messiah. The message is what he needs them to hear. Now the reason I know this is an issue is that in John chapter 6, verse 26, after he feeds the 5,000, all these people come to him and he said, you're not here because of the signs, you're here because your belly was filled. And then he goes on to tell them, you've got to drink my blood and eat my, eat my flesh. And they're offended and they leave. Jesus is not a good church growth follower um, because that is, you would normally want to keep the crowd and Jesus makes them go away. And that's my favorite, one of my favorite passages where he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. They weren't there just because of the miracles. They weren't there because of the signs. They weren't there because their belly was full. They were there because Jesus had said, follow me. And his words had gripped their entire existence. And that's what Jesus said, I'm here to do, is preach a message. 
but I'm still going to cast out demons and I'm still going to heal the sick. I'm still going to demonstrate who I am because I'm going to demonstrate that the kingdom is here. It's at hand. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to tell the devil what to do, when to do it, how to do it. I'm going to get him out of here and I'm going to heal the sick and demonstrate I am the Lord Almighty come to earth, but the message is what needs to be heard. Repent and believe the gospel. That is why I'm here. But the disciples who are thinking we're following a rabbi and we've got a ministry to do and this is great because he's so much more popular than these boring old scribes and Pharisees. Look, because he's healing the sick and doing all these wonderful things. Jesus, you've got a crowd. What are you waiting for? Let's go to this other town. But the crowd's here. I'm here to preach. Do you see what I'm getting at? Jesus wasn't interested in the people being attracted to the signs. He wanted to get to the point of the signs. The point is, the kingdom's here. Now, look at verse 38, or verse 39. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues, and casting out demons. He's not going to stop doing the signs. See, a way, a way you could say this, which would be wrong, is, well, if, you're more con if you don't want people to be attracted to the signs, why are you doing them? Because the signs demonstrate that he is who he says that he is. The signs demonstrate that the kingdom of God is here. The signs demonstrate that. But the signs are meant to point to the message. And there are lots of people that get it. And there are lots that don't. And we're going to see that throughout the gospel. Is there a relevance to us today? To that? Yes. Because a lot of people in our culture are not necessarily attracted because of miracles and signs. Even though I believe those happen. And I believe God does them. But a lot of people are attracted to Christianity for a lot of different things. They're trying to follow Jesus to be a better person, uh, to be, you know, this is what grandma did. Oh, we had a kid. They need to be in church. There's a lot of things that go through people's minds. And Jesus is saying, this isn't just some show. This isn't just some make-believe, pretend Maybe this will add a little value to your life religion. This is, the, this is the kingdom of God. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. Turn away from your life of sin and turn to Christ to serve Him. And it's going to get more intense. Jesus is going to tell you to take up your cross and die. Jesus is going to tell you that if you, you can't serve God and money. Jesus is going to tell people that, that there is no other way but Him. He is the way, the truth, and the life. It is exclusive, and it's unto the death. The, the life of, as C.S. Lewis said, uh, if I was looking for religion to make me happy, Christianity would not be the one I picked. Because the, the leader of Christianity, Jesus, said, take up your cross and die. Yay. You can see all the little fireworks of happiness. 
But when you encounter the King of the universe and His love and His mercy and His justice and His glory, you become willing to die. Because only Jesus can capture our hearts with a message that will cause, like Peter, you to say, where would I go? You have the words of life. Where else would I turn? The things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace so that money, and sex, and prestige, and whatever become worthless compared to knowing Jesus. The very next story, Jesus heals a leper. He's not going to quit healing. He's not going to quit delivering. But the point is the message of the gospel. I want everybody to stand with me if you would. I want everybody to just bow your head with me. I want you to think about this this morning, that, that Jesus entered into time. We're reading about some of the things that he did, and it's just really exciting to go through a gospel and talk about all that he did. We're hearing about what he preached. This morning, if you don't know him, you need to. You, you kind of know him from the periphery, out, off in the distance, but you're not living for him. I just want to give you an opportunity this morning to say, Jesus, I repent. I believe the gospel. I believe that you came. I believe that you came with the express purpose of dying on the cross for my sin and that God raised you from the dead on the third day. The Bible says that repentance is turning away from wherever you're walking currently and turning to Jesus. You don't have to have all of that figured out. You don't have to have a degree in theology. You just have to simply say, Lord, I call on your name. And the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if that's you this morning, do it. Do that. Repent. Call on his name. You don't have to have Anything other than you calling out to him and saying, Jesus, I believe in you. And if you're here this morning and you do that, love to talk to you after the service. Be available up here. Let's dismiss in prayer. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, and I pray, God, for every heart. Lord, I pray and know that you're dealing with hearts. Your ministry, Lord, your Earthly ministry was not a trifling time. It was the most earth-shattering time those three years you spent on earth. And Lord, I pray this morning that the impact and the power of your resurrection, the reality of who you are as the risen Savior and Lord, God, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that hearts would be changed, that eyes would be opened, that ears that were closed would be opened and hear the truth of the gospel. That we cannot save ourselves. We cannot be good enough. We cannot turn over enough new leaves. We need a Savior. 
from our sin. Lord, I pray for all of us as Christians that we would go away encouraged to pray, to press into You, to not take for granted the blessings that we have. Lord, I thank You for that in the precious name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. If anybody would like to talk, I'm available, you are dismissed.